Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting-edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two, and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Jennister Wilson-King, who is a board-certified OBGYN with over 25 years of clinical experience. She is the founder of Victory Rejuvenation Center, a private holistic and preventative medicine practice, and she's a clinician advocate and educator on medical cannabis. In this episode, we discuss the emerging research that indicates that cannabis can improve your sex life, especially as you age, and we also talk about whether cannabis affects fertility, whether cannabis is safe to use during pregnancy, and the emerging research showing that cannabis can be used as medicine to treat endometriosis. Well, Dr. Wilson King, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and I'm honored to be here. And I'd love to start by hearing more about your background. So I know you're an OBGYN and you do a lot of research for women's health. So how did this lead you to your work with cannabis? Uh, I had a conventional OBGYN practice. And in that practice, during that practice, I soon realized I needed to do more than I was doing. Conventional medicine essentially just put a Band-Aid on problems and too often didn't solve the problems. And I began seeing my patients in their 40s coming in on three to five medications, and this would increase as, as patient, older patients came in. And oftentimes there are more of those, more medications to counteract the side effects. So I said, we have to do something different. What I'm, what I'm doing isn't working. So I started to learn about nutrition, supplements, and bioidentical hormones, and this was back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I started using bioidentical hormones uh, during that time. And I, I went to conferences. I took courses. I just learned about nutrition. We had a four-week course in medical school, and that was all we heard about nutrition. So uh, I wasn't, I, needless to say, I wasn't well-trained. So anyway, by the early 2000s, I became known as the hormone doctor of my air, my, uh, in my area. And my practice, my hormone practice was growing astronomically. And then I started getting into preventive uh, measures, more focusing on wellness with my patients because I was assessing their medications. I was assessing, assessing their health and their supplements and what they were doing. And, and I view my patients as we are a spirit that has a soul that lives in the body. And you have to nourish and nurture all three in order to be well. And health is just the absence of disease, but wellness is a balance of spirit, soul, and body. Now, how cannabis came into that is I read in, I'd say, the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, I read a book by Lester Grinspoon, um, who was a Harvard psychiatrist who set out to write a book about the horrors of marijuana and that's what and the name of his book is marijuana the forbidden medicine and he ended up being converted to a believer in the cannabis plant and became very instrumental in the cannabis industry well i want to discuss a research project that you you worked on with a urologist at Stanford medical school and it was called the association between marijuana use and sexual frequency in the united states um, so, so it sounded like the study concluded that there was a positive association between marijuana use and sexual frequency. 
um, in men and women across all demographic groups. So, um, so I'm curious, first of all, like how you were involved in the study and what you learned and um, what the details were of it, but, but also, I mean, how this links into your, your greater goals, because of course, sexual health and frequency is, is a, you know, part of our overall well-being. That's so, right. so That's yeah. So how, how did you kind of connect this study to your practice and also what did you learn from being involved in it? Well, that study you're talking about is one that Dr. Eisenberg did before he and I met. Um, okay. I can still tell you about it. And, and the one you say in the follow-up, those two studies he did in 2017 and 2018, the study we did was, it was just published this year and it's entitled assessment of, um, where is it here? the title of the paper is assessment of the association of cannabis on female sexual function with the female sexual function index. We also did a male counterpart to that, uh, the same with an erectile uh, erectile dysfunction survey questionnaire to help interpret the results. This is kind of how it works. We our goal was to assess the impact of frequency of use of cannabis, what chemovar they used, what chemovar type, what method of consumption, and as well as asking questions about uh, when was the last time you saw a cardiologist? When, uh, you know, have you seen a cardiologist in the last three months? Kind of get an assessment of the medical situation, if they've seen a cardiologist more than once in the past three months, they probably have a heart problem. They have some medical problems. So it's a way of getting information about the medical history without asking directly because the study has to be HIPAA compliant. Okay. So we, we got all of that information. It was an anonymous online survey that was, had uh, that received IRB approval. And the survey was online from October 20th 2019 to March 12, 2020. And uh, the main outcome was that there we based the total FSFIs, female sexual function index. Now that sounds like a lot, but it's a questionnaire that was created in 2000. And it was a study based, uh, published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy. And what it is, is measures six domains in women, and they are uh, arousal, desire, arousal, uh, the lubrication, uh, orgasm, satisfaction, and pain. There's six domains. And the score, the top score is 36. And if your score is 26 and lower, then you you had some sort of sexual dysfunction. And what we found, we had 452 women complete the survey with the majority of them being between the ages of 30 and 49. And most of them were in a relationship, which was interesting. And we found that 72.8% of them reported using cannabis more than six times a week in the last four weeks. Now, let's say this, the participants were recruited through dispensaries and physician offices who were cannabis clinicians. So these were focused on people who were using cannabis because the point of the study is to assess the use of cannabis and its impact on sexual function or dysfunction in women. So we did skew the results to cannabis users because that's the point. And we found that those who had used more frequently had overall higher FSFI scores and had higher domain scores, meaning there was more desire for sex, there was more satisfaction with sex, better orgasms, more arousal. The only domain that didn't have a higher score, interesting enough, is pain which I find interesting because I treat a lot of women for, with, uh, who have pain with intercourse with cannabis and they do quite well. Mm. So uh, that was an interesting finding, but you know, not every study finds everything. And the dominant 
cannabinoid chemovar that was most frequently used was THC. However, when you compare that with a CBD dominant, however, what we found though, was that it didn't matter what chemovar they used, they still had improved sex, improved desire, arousal, orgasm, satisfaction. It was really, whether it was a CBD dominant or a THC dominant. Now that was pretty interesting, yeah. I thought. Yeah. But, wow, that's so interesting. And, and I wonder, what, what are your theories on, on why cannabis works so effectively in increasing, you know, all these different dynamics of sexual health? And is it, do you think it's more of a psychological element, being able to like relax or connect with your partner? Or do you think it is very like somatic and physical that it actually um, no, it's, it's, affecting your body? Yeah, it's probably... All, th- all of the above, mm-hmm. because the the most common reason for the cannabis use was to relax, yeah. followed by relieve stress. And then the third most common reason was sleep. So to relieve stress and to relax allows you to feel like you want to have sex. Mm-hmm. It allows you to have a desire for sex. When you're women, especially now I've been dealing with women for a long time, and I, <laughs> and I am one myself. I know oh, that the least little very thing. Very psychological, yeah. Oh, without if, if sex is in our head, in terms, if our head isn't right, we're just not interested. <laughs> we just aren't. If you've ticked us off about something, or if the kids are out of control, or if my mom is having issues, and if all of this stuff is going on, you're not interested in having. Oh, sex. absolutely. Or the. <laughs> Exactly. Whereas, whereas men, men use sex to relieve stress. So we are the opposite when it comes to that. So it was great to see that using cannabis allowed us to relax and relieve stress and feel like we wanted to have sex besides sex, uh, cannabis, excuse me, cannabis allows you to be much more present and allows you to be much more aware of your body so that you can get into the act, the foreplay and, and, and the intimacy easier than without the cannabis. So it's, 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 it's a lot of things. It's, it's, and it was, it's, it's, our findings were just tremendous. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the real interesting things, and I'm sorry if I'm going on and on, um, is that we found Uh, that the women who had more comorbidities, meaning potential for medical problems, had higher odds of sexual dysfunction. And, uh, but the method of cannabis use and chemovar type wasn't associated with developing the sexual function. It was there before. Mm -hmm. And the cannabis, cannabis did, cannabis use did help. Also, of course, this is pretty common. The odds of, of female sexual dysfunction are in the older women. Um, but that makes sense because older women don't have hormones and, and a lot of our uh, physical sexual gratification and sexual experience comes from having balanced hormones. So uh, that was pretty, pretty common. Mm. Pretty, um, yeah. Reasonable. And did you look at, did you look at methods of consumption and did yes. you notice any sort of association between like smoking versus using an edible um, versus a vaporizer, did, did you notice, did that actually affect any of these um, variables that you looked at? The routes of administration didn't have anything to do, didn't have an effect on uh, the, the sexual dysfunction or lack thereof. It, it seems it didn't matter what you used or how you used it, you did reap the benefits. Mm-hmm. It did impact sexual, your sexual health much better. Now, we, I, I know I'm probably jumping ahead, but what I found interesting is, you know, I've read about the gender differences with cannabis, and there are some, but I think there, but I believe that there are gender differences that are sociocultural, and those are changing. There are general differences that are biological. And we need to delve more into that. What I mean is some of the gender differences are that 
men smoke and use concentrates <clears throat> more than women. Well, in our study, 42.2% of the men smoked, 40.2% of the women smoked. So that's equal. So women are smoking cannabis just as much as men. So that's a sociocultural gender difference that is changing. Now, the, the I do wonder, though, I do wonder, though, that because this, this particular study was self-selected through a dispensary, mm-hmm. I think a lot of, so they probably were, you know, women who were seasoned users or women who had been using cannabis for some time. I, I do think um, people... Generally who- speaking, but though the older women were newer. Oh, okay. Yeah, the older women, uh, when I say older, I don't mean old, I just... You're talking Not like 20 or 30. I'm talking 50 40 plus, and okay, 60, 50 plus. 40, 45 and plus, 45 so and you up. Actually, yes. wait, okay. But when you were doing this particular survey study, you were looking at women between the ages of 30 and 40, 49, you said? 49. Most of them were between 30 and 49. Okay. All right. Not all of them. 54% yeah. were between 30 and 49. And did yeah. you see kind of the same results? Like, um, you know, because that is like almost a 20 year age span. So did mm-hmm. you see the same results across that, you know, entire... Yes. an entire population. So it wasn't more effective for women over the age of 45 or something. Great question. And no, it wasn't. It was just as effective if you were 20 or 50. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It yeah. sounds like you're, you're really onto something there. Yeah. It's so, really, we really got to do more research. On yeah. This. And did you look at, did you look at the, this kind of a similar survey on, um, for among men as well? Yes, yes, we did. Yeah, Uh, what were the results of that? And what were the differences that you observed? It was, it was really the same in terms of the more cannabis that was used, the more frequent use, not necessarily the higher dose or anything like that. We didn't delve into dosing, but the more frequent use of cannabis lessened sexual dysfunction in men as well. And how do you measure sexual dysfunction in men versus women? Is it the same around? Yes, we used what's called an international uh, erectile function uh, questionnaire, which is a similar screening tool that's used for men, similar to the FSFI for women. And it it would measure a, a certain score Below a certain score, you have uh, erectile dysfunction. Above a certain score, you probably don't. And more, the more frequent the use of cannabis allowed for higher scores on the erectile dysfunction survey. Mm-hmm. So we found a similar thing. Now, what is interesting is for men is, now we didn't find that in this study. I'm just, this is from other studies, actually, it's mostly from anecdotal use. For men, they have to be careful with the amount of THC because the amount of the amount of THC, lower doses are fine. Higher doses, it may be difficult to attain and maintain an erection. Mm-hmm. And sometimes higher doses of THC will cause retrograde ejacula- ejaculation. So using the concentrates and whatnot is probably not a good idea if you want to have sex. Mm. The it's using lower doses and it's it lowers relative for someone a low dose is 20 30 milligrams or for other another person a low dose is five milligrams so i mean it, it's really it's all individualized as cannabis use really is what works for one person doesn't work for everybody that's why it was we sort of expected but we're really interested to see whether or not the type of chemovar use had an effect, and it doesn't. Whether it's a high CBD or a high THC or a one-to-one, it didn't matter. It, it, they both, they all three improved sexual function. And when and, you look at this, when you look at this, and what what's your theory on why um, why cannabis is also effective for men, specifically when it comes to, let's say, erectile dysfunction. Is it the same, you know, is, is it the same things at play with women where it's like, you know, being able to relax and the psychological <laughs> element of it? Or, or are, are, are there um, different variables that impact men being able to um, 
have and maintain an erection, especially as they age? Yeah, we we didn't find the study wasn't designed to really determine that that's another study that we're talking about doing, but from anecdotal evidence and and dealing with patients, it's more, yes, men can get into their heads too, especially if they really with men, if they had an episode of losing an erection, then it's in their head. Yeah. And they're, they're worried about it happening again. So therefore using cannabis can alleviate that. I don't, I, there's, I cannot tell you because we haven't done studies to demonstrate this, whether cannabis directly affects, or I should say the mechanism of action of cannabis and ejaculate and erection and erectile dysfunction that hasn't been studied yet but believe me we are looking at all sorts of ways to figure that out yeah you know i think it to me it sounds like the nuances are a little bit different but yeah they but are. but i do think with with men there is a lot of shame around yes. you know not being able to perform sexually and i i can really see how that could impact it's yeah. it's a it's a reflection. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's a it's a reflection on their manhood. Yes. And you know, I get that's that. So, so right. That's very stressful. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And if you have yeah. something that's questioning your manhood, man, it's it's that's tough. So it can really get in your head. And using cannabis allows you to relax, forget about that. Yeah. Let's just focus on enjoyment. And have you, did you, through this study or through your knowledge, have you observed any sort of pattern in terms of at what age men might start to experience more erectile dysfunction or lack of interest in sex? I guess just, you know, kind of anecdotally, um, there, there is, I guess, I, there, there is that narrative that women hit their sexual peak kind of late thirties or, or sometime during their thirties and men hit it when they're 19. So <laughs> I'm wondering, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that and, and, and if that's true. <laughs> sure. Um, usually, well, I, I am a hormone doc and the hypogonadism, which is your testosterone level being less than 300 occurs, uh, generally will start in the forties mid to late 40s maybe earlier if there's a if there's medical problems that may be predisposed to lower hormone levels but yes your your testosterone levels can decline uh, men do have what we call an andropause or a male menopause where the hormone levels do decline and and so therefore their desire or libido decreases Sometimes the the morning, you know, men have erections in when they wake up in the morning, and those can change if your testosterone levels have decreased. So, yes, there is a male menopause or andropause that occurs usually mid to late forties and extending on, and that's when I'll see most men, and that or I'll their wives will bring them in. <laughs> and say help help please so yeah but men are much easier to uh treat than women because women are complex and i enjoy the complexity with women um, and i enjoy the simplicity with men mm-hmm. so it's uh it's all very, very, very interesting, and it's just so very rewarding when you can uh, when you can help people like that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like they have a, a new lease on life. Yeah, uh, and, and I do. I do want to talk about fertility, and um, I know Dr. Eisenberg did. It sounds like he did this study before you guys started working together, but he did mm-hmm. a study on the association between use of marijuana and time to pregnancy in mm-hmm. men and women. So, so I'm really interested in this and especially kind of based on this conversation that we're having um, because, well, first of all, like I, I have heard, and maybe it's just an urban legend from the streets, but I have heard mm-hmm. that cannabis lowers sperm count. So I'm wondering if that 
is true or untrue based on this study. And um, I'm also just wondering in general, because I do think sometimes when a couple is, is trying to conceive, it can be very stressful. Like oh. there's, you know, like that challenge to, okay, well, now we have to have sex while, <laughs> while the woman is ovulating on these specific days. And I, I mean, it's just not, it's not as organic and fluid, I think, as just sex out of pure desire, sex with a desire to conceive. So, so I am wondering, I think it would be really useful information to know whether that is, you know, something that could be incorporated into that, that plan mm-hmm. fertility or not and how people, how couples or, or women and men should, pers- um, should, Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and and you're right. It is, it actually is not an urban legend. It has been shown in some studies that cannabis can lower the sperm count. And sometimes there is an effect on the sperm, but meaning the motility of the sperm is what I should say. Sometimes there's an effect on the motility. What does that mean? The sperm move and swim in a certain direction it's it's kind of like upstream, so to speak. Mm, okay. Uh, but sometimes cannabis, well, not cannabis, but certain medications can change, can affect the motility or of the sperm, and it, it's not effective in moving where in the direction that it should. That's okay. what that means. Now, when you have that finding, that's an objective finding. That still doesn't tell you if it's an impact on fertility. Because you can say, okay, cannabis affects the white matter volume in the brain, but the person is normal. All the testing is normal. Nothing changes. So it's like, okay, you have this finding. Does it, is there any clinical impact of that finding? That's what we need to see. And, and what Dr. Eisenberg's study or looking at time to pregnancy, he compared couples that used cannabis versus couples that didn't use cannabis and found that the time to pregnancy was no different. And was he also controlling for like, you know, the number of times the couple had had sex or, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of different variables that I think would go into that. Yeah. He had a total of, uh, I think it was a 758 men okay. and a thousand females uh, that responded that they were actively trying to conceive and about, I think it was about 16 and a half percent of the men uh, reported using cannabis while attempting to conceive while 11 and a half percent of the women did. And the time ratio to pregnancy for never smokers versus daily users was 1.08 and 0.92, meaning there were no statistically significant impact of cannabis on the t- cannabis use on the time to pregnancy. It didn't get into any further detail than that, you, because this was a retrospective review of data. It wasn't a prospective study, meaning you you uh, study the survey was planned and and we were looking at all of these things and then we did that. This was a a national survey of family growth, which is a national representative, nationally representative population-based sample. And it was a retrospective look at the data as far as um, who had problems and who didn't. And about who uh, the time to pregnancy for all the couples and the ages were between 15 and 44. And this was 2006 to 2010, 2011 to 2015. So it was pretty spread out and pretty far back, like 15 years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hmm. And and I know the scientific literature um, that I've observed through different conversations and um, regarding marijuana use in pregnancy is, is mixed. So I think there's a lot of confusion among OBGYNs on how do they counsel women about the risks of abuse. So, so what are your thoughts on this and how do you typically counsel the, the patients that you see? Okay. One more thing I wanted to say is there's a nice paper that reviews male cannabis effects on male reproduction. Um, and it talks about mainly that the current evidence really is contradictory. Um, regarding the effects of cannabis on male reproductive hormone production. So most studies that associate cannabis use with lower sperm concentrations, but we suggesting a negative impact on fertility, meaning, okay, 
does lowering the sperm count actually affect fertility? In this study, if it lowered the sperm count, it didn't affect fertility because the time to pregnancy was the same for people who didn't use cannabis and for people who did use cannabis. So for the majority of people, it may not be an issue, but if there's a couple that's having trouble conceiving and cannabis use, and they're using cannabis, well, then one of the things I would do as a fertility specialist would say, okay, let's stop using the cannabis and let's see what happens. Yeah. That right. Way. I think that, yeah, that's obviously very. Yeah. Good. So because it's, it's theory. Yeah. I mean, you only need one sperm to like. Exactly. Exactly. So exactly. Really <laughs> uh, what the count is. So, so exactly. I, that's, that's what I was trying to say, but anyway. yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, so of course I think it, it probably is more effective to actually measure time to pregnancy versus yes. sperm count because exactly. That, isn't necessarily going to affect that. So that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, that's really, I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) (laughs) So, right. So, and it's also, I think, good like PSA that cannabis is not a natural birth control. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, no, don't use it for that. Um, So now about pregnancy. Now I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. The effects of cannabis use during pregnancy discussion is a podcast within itself. <laughs> okay. Right, of course. But, it, but briefly, uh, the data is suspect at best. Most of the information, most of the studies <clears throat> we have are based on smoking cannabis. And for the past five plus years, we have been, the routes of administration for cannabis are numerous. You know, you have the edibles, you have the sublinguals, the oils, the concert. You have all sorts of ways to ingest and inhale uh, cannabis. So just smoking is not the only way, only route of administration. However, in the studies that were done looking at smoking cannabis and the effects on pregnancy, not only were they smoking cannabis, but they were also smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, taking other pharmaceuticals. Many of the studies did not assess nutrition and lifestyle habits. So there were so many confounding factors that even the findings, you couldn't say they came from using cannabis because there are so many other things that can, can, could have affected the baby, the mom and the baby. Now, there is a consistent finding. The National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine report of 2017 found one consistent finding in their uh, review of 10,000 papers, and they found that smoking cannabis lowered the birth rate, birth weight of the babies. Now, we're talking about less than half a pound difference. So not saying that that's necessarily clinically impactful, but they are, the babies are a little smaller. It doesn't mean that the babies had problems. Uh, when you're talking about a very small baby, then you'd be concerned about failure to thrive. Say if the baby maybe would have been five and a half pounds, uh, excuse me, five pounds, and it was born four and a half pounds. Well, below five pounds is a, considered a small baby, but then you look at, well, is there failure to thrive? Is there a problem, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, babies born uh, with a lower birth weight, and who's, who's to say the seven and a half and seven pounds, there isn't that much different. There's no developmental delays or anything like that. But the real small babies, you do have to be careful. But here's the caveat. The smoking was the problem, not the cannabinoids. Smoking cannabis, as in smoking cigarettes, shifts the, uh, let me put this in layman's terms, you have more carbon monoxide in the body and that affects the blood flow to the baby. So the baby does come smaller, like we does the babies are smaller, just like it is in smoking cigarettes. We know smoking cigarettes causes smaller babies and, and compromises some of the blood supply to the baby. Smoking cannabis does the same thing. So it's the smoke, not the cannabinoids mm-hmm. that cause the problem. That's key. 
to know. And the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine report stated that as such. So um, any of the other findings like miswired brains, um, uh, I guess there was a recent study with autism and, and another study with it affects your child's ability to sleep and things like that. We have to look at all of that a lot better than we do. The, the best way to determine this is to have a cannabis only, uh, people who use cannabis only, people who don't drink alcohol, don't take any other pharmaceuticals, uh, don't use any other illicit drug, any, any illicit drugs. Not, cannabis is a legal drug, but there are some illicit ones like cocaine and heroin and things like that. And oftentimes people will use other drugs. So what we need to do is a study where they're just using cannabis and follow that. Right. No, you can't make people use cannabis. So in other words, you can't do a randomized controlled trial. That would be unethical. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. what you can do is what the University of Washington is currently doing is they're just asking patients who are pregnant and who use cannabis to participate in their study. They're not making them use cannabis. They're not supplying the cannabis or anything. They're just following them along and they will follow the babies along and see if there's a problem. So I'm really looking forward to that study when it comes out yeah, a few that, years down the road from now. Yeah, that sounds so critical because I think it's so difficult to do research on what is considered safe in pregnancy because the stakes are so high. Exactly. So, you exactly. know, and even herbs, like even an herbal tea, like chamomile right. um, has a warning on it. that says technically not safe, like for right. pregnant women. So, right. so I, I do wonder sometimes just, it's just really, you know, it's very difficult to do, to do this kind of research because mm -hmm. people don't want to take that risk. That's exactly right. Exactly right. That's why you have to ask people that are using mm -hmm. cannabis who are right. pregnant. And to maybe who are using it, who are using it for, for medical reasons. Too. Right. That's a, that's another, that's another reason. That's exactly yeah. right. Where there yes. might be, yeah, there might be negative, other negative um, side effects if they stop using it as medication. Right. Let's, uh, for example, their pregnancy. And that's a great point. Great point. For example, a woman comes to you, she's been using high doses of CBD, maybe about 300 milligrams a day to control her seizures. No other, none of the anti-epileptic drugs did that. Her seizures are well controlled. She's seizure free and she ends up pregnant. Now as an obstetrician, am I going to take her off the CBD? No, I don't want her to have seizures. I mean, that can be more detrimental to the baby. Mm. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it. Now you did ask me, I guess you did. Well, maybe you're going to how I would typically counsel someone who is pregnant and about using cannabis and things like that. And basically what I would do is I, my, my bottom line is women who are pregnant, the foundation of a healthy pregnancy is to eat real food, breathe fresh air and drink fresh water period. Avoid all drugs, avoid white sugar, processed foods, caffeine, uh, pharmaceuticals, Tylenol, all drugs, if at all possible. But if somebody, that's, that's just the panacea. But I'd inform the patients about the studies. Some research actually shows there's benefit to using cannabis in pregnancy. Cannabis can be, considered, can be considered harm reduction in pregnancy. Say, for instance, a patient has a, this is maybe their second pregnancy, and the first pregnancy was complicated by hyperemesis gravidarum, and they ended up in the hospital several times until maybe mid-second trimester, um, and it was just horrific. And the woman is just... She's so anxious. She's so fearful that that's going to happen again. She did her research and found that cannabis can help alleviate the nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. So 
She wants to use it. What do I tell her? Well, I give her my uh, recommendations for handling nutrition in during the early pregnancy with morning sickness and whatnot, you know, frequent small meals, nothing too spicy, try to go bland, try to, you know, the, you don't want to ever get completely full. You don't want to ever get, allow your stomach to get completely empty, like nibble, be a grazer all day and exercise. And there's lots of other things we can do, but if those don't work and the patient finds she's just not able to keep food down and she's just, um, if a puff or two on a vape pen a week keeps her out of the hospital and allows her to gain weight normally, then okay, that's harm reduction. One or two puffs a week is not going to cause, well, we certainly hope it's not going to cause any problem. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee if you take Tylenol that you're, you won't have a problem in pregnancy. Yeah, and, and I think because the research is so it is so um, unfinished at this point, it really is such an mm-hmm. individual and customized decision. So I'm wondering, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, but if you could just explain a little bit more about, um, yeah, the, the role that the endocannabinoid system plays in a pregnancy. And, and I, I do know that like I do, or I have heard that the endocannabinoid system actually develops very early on in the development yes. of the fetus. Yes, so, it does. so does that, so, and this is just, this is one, um, something that I'd heard from a different researcher is because the endocannabinoid system develops so early in the fetus that if a woman does, um, let's say consume a cannabis product, the fetus is actually going to be exposed to that in a really high amount because they've already developed these receptors for that plant. Well, is that true or what? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I just want to put that into the conversation. Yes. The, the concern about the fetus and newborn stems from the fact that THC does cross the placenta, and that was determined in 1987. And there are three developmental stages in which, during which the endocannabinoid system plays an essential role for development and survival of the fetus. So during early gestation, successful passage of the embryo through the tube and to implanting into the uterus requires the endocannabinoids specifically anandamide in order for it to process correctly. And let me just say this, the brain has the highest concentration of cannabinoid receptors. The female reproductive system has the second highest concentration of cannabinoids, cannabinoid receptors. Um, So yes, the female reproductive system is very cannabinoid sensitive. So there's the early gestation with the embryo passing through the tube and then planting into the uterus requiring anandamide. Then during fetal life, the endocannabinoids and the CB1 are important for brain development. They're important for regulating the neural cells and their development into the different subtypes like glial cells and things like that in the brain. And the endocannabinoids and the receptor, CB1 receptor, are important for guiding the migration and the connecting of the synapses in the brain. Anandamide also protects the brain from naturally occurring trauma-induced loss. So you have anandamide really working, and that's an endocannabinoid, and, you, and your CB1 receptor and anandamide feeds. Also, postnatally, CB1 receptor activation by 2-AG, which is another endocannabinoid, plays a critical role in initiating suckling in, um, for the baby. And this was done by a preclinical study using mouse pups. Uh, and what, what they did is they, they put a, they would block the CB1 receptors in these mouse pups and then as soon as they were born, give them THC. One group of 
pups got the THC as soon as they were born. Another group, they waited 24 hours. Another group, they waited five days. Well, the, the pups that got the THC right away, all of them survived. The pups that got this THC in 24 hours, half of them died. By five days, all of them died because they weren't able to suckle and nourish themselves. So uh-huh. this is where THC is a positive is a benefit because if something were to be wrong with the endocannabinoid system and you give THC, that helps. But that's pups. Those are preclinical animal studies. They don't always translate into humans. So no, I would never encourage someone to use cannabis that early in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have to be harmful. Mm-hmm. It isn't necessarily harmful. Yeah. And I hope I've been a little more clear than I feel like I have been. Yeah, no, you've been, I think you've been very thorough. And ultimately, the, the goal of this podcast is really just to provide information. But ultimately, it's for everyone to speak with their own physician and make their mm-hmm. the best decision for them. Um, okay, but I really do want to talk to you about using cannabis to treat endometriosis because um, yes. I know there's, I mean, well, I know there's some initial studies. I, I just saw one that came out of Spain um, mm-hmm. in treating mice um, with cannabinoids for, for endometriosis. And, and I also know that there's, um, yeah, there's a company in the Bay Area that's really um, creates specialty cannabis products to treat endometriosis or, or, you know, and it's all anecdotal at this Mm -hmm. point, but, Mm -hmm. but I just have seen this and heard about this anecdotally so much. So I really um, would love to hear your thoughts on this. Sure. Sure. I'm very familiar with the study out of Spain that was published in January of 2020. And what they did is they created a mouse model that mimics some of the conditions of human, of, of endometriosis. The, the, the mice, uh, experienced pelvic pain, anxiety, and memory impairments. And the mice were treated with moderate doses of of THC, like two milligrams per kilogram for 28 days. They injected the the mice with with the THC. And they found that the THC reduced the pelvic pain and there were no cognitive impairments in the mice, but it had no effect on their anxiety. That's because they were only using THC. Mm. Um, instead of you know a combination of THC and CBD, where so they were they using the they were using like a THC isolate, so no yes. other, no so no other cannabinoids, no terpenes, okay. right? Oh, right. Okay, so that is limited in terms. That's of- right. That's mm-hmm. right. But it did reduce the size of the endometrial implants. Plus, it did um, relieve the pain uh, from endometriosis and at whatever cognitive impairments were were uh, also improved with the THC. So that shows there's hope. Now, anecdotally and clinically, I've been using THC vaginal suppositories, THC CBD suppositories in patients with endometriosis and getting wonderful results, wonderful results. Um, and are you doing like, are you recommending doing that on a daily basis? Or I think with endometriosis, sometimes it just flames up more when a woman is right, treating, or, you know, right before or after that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a combination of things. They're, they're using an oil for a chronic use, daily use, uh, inhalation, PRN pain, and if the pelvic pain is bad, they put a uh, suppository in at night. So it's it's really as an as needed uh, tool. Besides being using the the oil on a regular basis, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and that really works well. And the thing about cannabis in endometriosis is many of these patients. These women, oh, I just my heart goes out to them. Many of them are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety, even anti-psychotic meds, because they've been going around complaining about this pain to physicians for so long and haven't been diagnosed as endometriosis that they're treated like they have a mental or psychological problem and that are put on those type of medications. Treating them with cannabis can get them off those medications. They can feel themselves again. And 
and, and they feel validated. Like somebody finally listened to me yeah. and, and, and helped and, and, and gave me something I can do. I can feel like myself again. So it's really been, um, that's why cannabis is so special for women. Because mm-hmm. many women's health conditions have caused difficulty with sleeping, difficult, cause pain, cause emotional uh, problems, depression, anxiety. Cannabis can solve all of that mm-hmm. if used yeah. properly. And, and people are usually on two or three different routes of administration using things kind of as needed. They have their one continual dose, but then there's breakthrough and there's episodic uh, exacerbations. So then you have to adjust accordingly and treat accordingly. And it's wonderful the way cannabis affects that. The last thing I'll say is that uh, Ethan Russo has done a study, or actually I won't say does, has several papers beginning in 2000 talking about the clinical endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. And endometriosis is a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome and that's why it responds to cannabis so well okay it's awesome yeah wow that's yeah that's really um that's and that's powerful to know i think because then there can just be more focus and more research on absolutely medicine um so there's so much more i want to ask you but Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna hold myself (laughs) back and just ask you one final question so i'd like to know what what excites you most about your research or your practice going forward and what would you like most like to learn about cannabis i think research needs to be much more inclusive Men are not the only people that matter. We have to include women. We have to include transgender and all of the LGBTQ population in these studies. Women are buying and using cannabis just as much as men. And there are differences in the genders. Some are social, cultural, like I explained, but others are biological because estradiol does regulate the female response to cannabinoids. And that's another podcast (laughs) in which we can talk about all of that. But I just want to see more inclusion and and really better design studies. Mm -hmm. And we can learn a lot more about this plant and how it affects all people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wilson King. This has been so informative. And yeah, well, I'd love to have you back on at another time because I feel like we barely scratched the surface here on these topics. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.